And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Cade Institute. Uh, my name is Andrei Larionov. I am a senior fellow uh, at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity of the Cade Institute. Um, this afternoon, I have uh, a special honor and a particular pleasure uh, to be to moderating this session with uh, Yulia Latinina. For anyone who is even remotely familiar with the current Russian uh, events, uh, Yulia Latinina does not need any introduction. Uh, Yulia Latinina is not only independent Russian journalist, uh, she's probably the best uh, Russian journalist today. She's writing for the best Russian outlets, including Nova Gazeta, Kommersant, Yosh, uh, Izvestia. Not Kommersant anymore, sorry. All right. So okay. Just, there is, just, uh, okay. You will you will clarify this issue, but you did yes. uh, write for Kommersant uh, sometime, maybe in, during epoch for Kommersant and for uh, Russian politics. Um, uh, Yule is not only uh, a journalist. Uh, Yule is writing uh, uh, novels, uh, fiction novels. She's an author of more than a dozen of fiction novels uh, in Russia. At least half of them became, became really top best-selling novels uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Russian literature. Uh, uh, Yule is, uh, has been awarded with very many journalistic and writers' awards uh, in many countries, uh, not only in Russia. Uh, slightly more than a year ago, uh, she has been awarded uh, uh, the uh, Freedom Defenders Award by the U.S. State Department, and this award has been uh, uh, awarded by the Secretary of State uh, to Yulia. The interests uh, 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 are very wide, uh, interest of topics on which uh, Yulia is writing is very wide, from the economic affairs of uh, Russian entrepreneurs and oligarchs to the Russian-Georgian war, uh, from a particular uh, characteristic of situation in Caucasus to backbones of the Russian political system. Recently, uh, her essay, uh, A Swarm, or Anti-Baker, uh, became one of the most read, and I would say must-read, articles uh, in the uh, modern Russian uh, political journalism. Uh, over the last several months, uh, Yuli is writing uh, a lot on global warming scam, uh, and very successfully uh, able to translate uh, the scientific language uh, of climatology into the language understandable to general public and is extremely successful in that business that some of uh, official climatologists became incredibly unhappy uh, with her findings. Um, uh, today, as I understand Yulia is going to present us uh, a special report uh, prepared for this uh, afternoon that uh, probably we can call um, Russia, uh, Yulia is writing uh, and talking a lot about um, superpower and empire and uh, she has invented a new dimension of superpower, very important, much more important than many other dimensions that we usually uh, used to talk about the 
a residential uh, dimension of superpowers. So that is why we can call it a residential superpower. So Yuri is going to talk about uh, uh, Russia. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, join me in welcoming Yulia Latinian this afternoon. Because I was wondering where the computer is. So how does it... Ah, yes. Oh, yes. Oh. Okay, so let's go on. And let's, ladies and gentlemen, it's okay? It's okay? Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present you Lena Interstate Highway. Uh, this is a highway that uh, connects Moscow to one of uh, the biggest regions in Russia called Yakutia. Actually, it's usually said that Yakutia is bigger than France, Germany, Finland, uh, Sweden, and something and something combined together. So this is the road to reach Yakutia. And it's the only road, I must add. And actually, it's not in the worst shape. And this is another interstate highway, the one that connects Moscow and Vladivostok. Uh, it is also the only road that connects the east and west of Russia, and that's the shape of the road. So Russia has uh, uh, got $1.5 billion on oil and gas revenues during Putin's time, and it has built actually zero kilometers of expressways, I mean of roads that can stand to the definition of an expressway or a highway. Naturally, it has built something, but they don't stand to this definition. Uh, actually, just to compare, China during the last 20 years uh, was building around five uh, to 6,000 kilometers of expressways annually, and is now uh, and now uh, it has the number two expressway network after United States. So actually, all this money, where it went and what was built with it, because obviously something has been built. So yes, something has been built, and now I present you one thing that has been built, and that's President's residence in Yekaterinburg. Actually, he stayed there once. And this is another residence that has been built, but it was not exactly with the state money. It was with the money uh, that was managed by a charity fund, and uh, the money was donated, voluntarily donated, uh, by state and private companies such as Transneft, Lukoil, uh, Rosneft. Uh, actually, the amount of money that went to the restoration of Konstantinovsky Palace in St. Petersburg is officially declared uh, to be uh, $250 million dollars which is a bit strange because Mr. Nevslin, one of the shareholders of Yukos, uh, he complained that he was milked to the extent from uh, $100 to $200 million. Just Yukos was milked, was asked for donations. But nevertheless, the official uh, net figure is uh, 250 and the workers, the construction workers, at some time sued the administration of president, which managed the charity fund, uh, because they were not paid for the work. Uh, and actually, if you divide the number, the, the, the surface of the palace, it's uh, 4,800 square meters uh, by $250 million. You'll get a sum that uh, nears 
50,000 dollars per meter, per square meter. But of course, of course, the palace had a park. We had to consider this. So there's another residence uh, built just recently, and that's one of the 13 official residences of Russian president. Look how beautiful it is, because right now I'm going to show you another residence, which is decidedly not so beautiful. It's decidedly on the shabby side. And this is Camp David, one of two official residences of United States president. Just look who is the superpower. <laughs> so, of course, you might think that Russia is a big country and 13 residences, it's not enough. So, you may be quiet, you may not worry. Russian president or prime minister, if they can be distinguished, distinguished they have more. For instance, this is a very, these are two pictures I've got uh, from two different dates. One is dated by year 2000. That's Putin skiing in Abzakova. That's a resort, a skiing resort in Magnitogorsk, in the center of Russia. And then the second is dated uh, 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 three years later, uh, by January 203. And actually, to, to, by January 203, uh, 2003, sorry, and uh, what is important uh, to understand is that, uh, as I've said, uh, Abzakov is situated near Magnitogorsk, and at some time, uh, several years ago, Magnitogorsk steel mill came under attack. Uh, and you can see Mr. Rashnikov, the owner of the mill and chief executive officer, standing, said, sitting near Putin. Uh, during his trip to Magnitogorsk. So what actually happened is that uh, Mr. Rashnikov wanted to defend himself, so he rebuilt the resort, built something to house Mr. Putin. Actually, he even rebuilt the airstrip, which, of course, contributed to, to, the, to the well-being of uh, all the rest of the population because everybody lands there, not just Putin. Uh, so, and then he invited Putin to come in and have uh, and to ski. And Putin skied, and the question of hostile takeover did not arise anymore. So actually, I just try to imagine, uh, you know, an American company which is uh, uh, underpriced uh, and which is coming under attack of or somebody of hostile takeover artist, and which is inviting President Obama to ski and solving all its problems this way. Uh, so. This is another residence which is not yet built, which is going to be built. There's official announcement for this. Uh, the price tag is uh, 7.7 .7 billion rubles, and it will be in Primoria, that's in the far east of Russia. And, of course, there's another residence that is going to be, to be built in the far west, in Kaliningrad. The price is unknown, uh, but we know this, there were several people who were thrown out of their houses. They went to the courts to complain and they were told, no deal, sorry, the president is going to reside there. And these are two very nice pictures, nice, very nice scenery. Uh, one is the Angudai region in Altai Republic, and the other is Pihem region in Tuva Republic. What do they have in common? Uh, both hosted Putin. Uh, he had a short vacation to Altai in June and to Tuva in August. In both cases, the vacations actually were officially declared a government trip, and both areas soon after the visit were turned into nature preserve. And on December 22nd last year, Putin signed a decree to build a 22-kilometer road to a new mysterious residence in Altai.
And actually, that's another residence of Mr. Putin, or rather the way to it. Nobody knows uh, how the residence looks like. A lot of environmentalists would like to know. Uh, a lot of green activists would like to know, uh, because the residence is situated in a real natural park, and you can see the trees being felled to build the road to the residence. So the green activists went to see further. They were stopped uh, and politely turned back. But so we don't know what the residence looks like. We can just assume it's like this one. Uh, it's a trish. It's another residence that's being built. Uh, but this one is for Medvedev. Uh, near Lunaya Poliana, near Krasnaya Poliana, also in this uh, southern region. Uh, and it's also been built in uh, a natural park. And the green activists are also crazy. Uh, and all what I'm talking about, all these are unofficial residences, except for Utrish. Because, for instance, the official name for Lunaya Poliana is Prirodny Zapovednik Biosfera. And it's being built uh, by uh, some guys close to Gazprom. So... This is the road from Moscow to Vladivostok. And these are, well, nice things. Uh, actually, you see drivers shooting at road signs to express their opinion. Uh, so one other topic I would like to address is why Russia is called energy superpower. In year 2008, Russia produced 640 billion cubic meters of natural gas, uh, which actually the Gazprom it is Gazprom production that counts. Uh, Gazprom pr produced uh, 550 billion, uh, and uh, it's as I've said, uh, Gazprom should be counted, and the others should be discounted because a lot of producers just cannot sell their gas besides Gazprom. Their gas is burned, actually, like this. So United States produced at this time uh, 580 billion cubic meters of natural gas, slightly less, than, uh, slightly less than Russia, slightly more than Gazprom. But, of course, it's not only the production volume, but it's also the price that counts. And... It's easy to calculate the revenues of United States producers because all the natural gas is sold through Henry Hub. And in year 2008, the Henry Hub spot price averaged $323 per 1,000 cubic meters. I apologize for those who measure price, the Henry Hub price in British thermal units. It's just translated into dollars here. It's just translated into cubic meters here. So it's uh, less easier to uh, calculate Gazprom uh, revenues uh, because uh, its uh, gas is not sold at market price. It's diversified. Uh, but basically, Gazprom got uh, $47 billion from its sales to Western Europe, $10 billion from its domestic sales, and another $10 billion from its sales in near abroad. So this basically means that in year 2008, Gazprom got $47 billion in revenues from sales to Western Europe, and United States gas producers got $185 billion revenues. Uh, so why Russia is an energy superpower? Of course, 
maybe the situation has been changed in year 2009. Indeed, it has been changed because Russian gas production has dropped, uh, mainly because of Gazprom's uh, sales policy. And Russia produced total, as a total, only 575 billion cubic meters of gas. And United States production has peaked, mainly because of shale gas production, and USA produced 620 billion cubic meters of gas. Actually, yes, prices also dropped drastically, and there was even one time at September 2009 uh, when United States price was lower than Russian domestic price. But, of course, the natural question is, how comes that... Both states are producing more or less the same amount of gas. Sometimes it's Russia that's, be- that's before. Actually, right, no- right now Russia is behind, and Russia is considered an energy superpower. Now, the answer is terrifying, and the answer is the absence of chemical industry. What makes Russia the energy superpower is the absence of chemical industry in Russia, because Russia, which is cold and which is big and which is not and where consumption, energy consumption is not effective, uh, consumes uh, something like uh, 280 billion cubic meters of gas uh, domestically. And the United States consumes 670 billion cubic meters of gas. And, of course, some of this, uh, 30% of this, goes to chemical industry. And the revenues of American chemical industry which is the first number first in the world, in year 2008 were $400 billion. And actually, in year 2005, you can see U.S. chemical industry consumed around 2 billion terajoules of energy as measured in natural gas, and Russian chemical industry, which is the 12th in the world, consumed, uh, you know, uh, almost nine times less. It's just, uh, so, uh, actually, I think it's a very good question. Uh, Why does Putin not invest in chemical industry? Okay, he has got natural gas, has got Gazprom, has got Russia as his property. He is building pipelines. These pipelines are very costly, especially in comparison to China's pipelines. For instance, China has built recently a pipeline from Turkmenia, uh, and the cost of this pipeline, which is uh, 1,800 kilometers, is about $2 billion. And uh, the pipeline, the Nord Stream pipeline, which, is, uh, which Putin is trying to build, uh, its estimated cost is around $16 billion. And the estimated cost uh, of uh, South Stream pipeline can rise as high as $40 billion. I would not believe this figure if it were not told to me by one of, uh, actually, Gazprom guys who were doing the talks. Uh, so, why is Putin, Putin, why Putin is building costly and ineffective pipelines and is not building chemical industry? Uh, for instance, just to compare, China invests in chemical industry, uh, something like from 15 to 20 billion dollars annually. And the answer is that pipeline is not, uh, the, the uh, chemical plant is market. You have to compete. You have to be on the market. Putin does not like the market. A pipeline is a symbol of something that's not market. 
Putin likes to suppress market in Russia, and Putin's strategy is to suppress market whenever he thinks is possible. So this is, I think it's a very philosophic issue. And two things I want to show you to compare, just two pictures. That's just, uh, just an ordinary chemical plant. Actually, it's a U.S. plant that's been shut down and sold wholesale. And this is the villa of Mr. Alexei Miller, Gazprom chief executive officer. And it's an, it's an exact replica of Konstantinovsky Palace in St. Petersburg. And if you just think about it, it's also a different philosophy because, you know, no American chief executive officer can permit to build himself a copy of a palace because to build a palace, you have to need, you have uh, to have in the country a whole class of servants, which America doesn't have. It's different philosophy. It's not just different building. So my point is that you have in the country either these or these. You can have both. And this is another picture, very funny, because you can see that after the scandal that arose, the Miller-Hof disappeared from Yandex and Google Maps. And it's a very nice picture and a very nice plane. And it's uh, Mr. Sechin who is flying on this plane. And uh, Mr. Sechin is a very powerful guy in Russia. Officially, he is deputy prime minister. Of course, he is not the first guy in Russia, because the first guy is Mr. Putin. But also, Mr. Sechin is not the second guy. He's somewhere in between. Uh, so this is a foreign-made plane, and I don't begrudge this to Mr. Sechin or to any other government official who is using this plane, because, uh, well, uh, it's its market. You buy the best plane. Uh, but the point is that uh, the plane is serviced uh, by a company called Airfix Aviation, and it's based in Helsinki, which seems strange because, you know, uh, the Russian government tells us that Russia is hated by the West, Russia is despised by the West. So why do the companies that service their planes are based in the West? And actually, the company Airfix Aviation belongs to a man called Gennady Timchenko, and that's his residence in Geneva. And Timchenko is the guy who sells, among other things, former Yukos oil. And a lot of oil he sells. And uh, he is an acquaintance of President Putin, of Prime Minister Putin. But as he often repeats, it has nothing to do with him being so lucky and getting all this oil. And the funny thing is that Mr. Timchenko is a citizen of Finland and not of Russia. So I'm once again wondering... These guys tell us that Russia is hated by the West. Why do they have their villas in Russia, uh, in, uh, in Geneva? Why do they register their companies in Geneva? Why do they keep their planes abroad? Why don't they keep, uh, say, buy their villas in Iran, in Syria? Why don't they keep their money in Venezuela? Why they don't send their children to, South, uh, to North Korea to be educated there? Because obviously North Korea and Venezuela and countries like this are Russian, are Russian allies. And Russia is hated by the West. So why all Russian officials and all people close to Russian officials prefer the West to live in and reside in and do their business in if they are hated by the West? And this is actually a very nice picture. Uh, and it's the only picture you could... 
uh, imaginably get of one of the most mysterious men that surround Gazprom. His name is Minasir Ziyadis. Actually, he's not Russian. He's an Arab. So it's a tough Arab uh, who is providing services. His company, which is called uh, Gastroy Consulting, is providing services for Gazprom. For those of you who know how Gazprom operates, uh, you may imagine that the price tag for the services you render to Gazprom, it can be, shall we say, indefinite. And Mr. Menasir Ziyad is a very mysterious man who, after the crisis, he went shopping and he bought actually three villas in Sardinia, the most famous one in Punta Nuraghe. It's a very nice city, as you see. And, of course, my question is, okay, suppose Menasir Ziyad bought one villa to himself, to whom he bought the two others. And that's another picture that's a yacht. It's a $50 million present from Abramovich to Mr. Putin. And just pay attention to the flag of the yacht. It's Cayman Islands. So once again, I repeat this question. Russia is hated by the West, as Kremlin claims. Why do these guys have their yachts on the Cayman Islands flag? Why do these people buy villas in Sardinia, houses in London, and keep their companies in Geneva. And that's a very interesting story. That's uh, an anti-air anti defense system, which is called S400. And if you'll Google it or Yandex it, you'll see that it's very nice, that it has 400-kilometer uh, uh, range, that it can destroy not only uh, planes but also missiles. And there's just one small Catch. The system does not exist. Actually, this is another picture, which is a very strange picture, uh, because uh, uh, this is supposed uh, to be a launch of an S-400 missile, and the picture is dated by May 27, 2007, and the first S-400 missile was launched on December 16 last year. Actually, the missile did not hit the target, uh, but the launch was considered successful because it flew out. So why I'm saying that the system does not exist? Because officially it has to have three types of rockets, two of which never flew, and only one, the one that was launched in December, ever flew. And actually, still the system is standing on something which is called experimental military watch in uh, in a small um, suburban uh, Moscow town, which is called Elektrostal. So what's standing there on experimental military watch? It's a good old S-300, which is a nice system, which, you know, we are trying to make a deal with Iran to sell it or not to sell it. Nobody understands what's going to happen. Yes, so it's a good uh, system, and why it is called S-400. Uh, because, as the experts will, will explain to you, because it has some parts of S-400. So it's like, you know, taking a Jiguli, putting on a new brake that comes from a Mercedes and claiming that it's, an, that it's a Mercedes. And actually that's S-400 on Red Square on official parade. And this is another story which I like very much. 
This is an agreement signed on October, two, uh, October 17th last year. And you can see Mr. Chubais, the head of uh, Nanotech, and the, Mr. Yevtushenkov, the head of Russian corporation called Systema, which, among other things, is the owner of a plant uh, called Micron. Uh, this is the plant situated in Zelenograd, and it has to manufacture microchips. And in the presence of Mr. Putin, who is standing behind, uh, they are sending an agreement. Actually, it's a $500 million agreement to purchase from a company called ST Microelectronics. That's a French company. The newest, as Russian newspapers put it, the newest 90 nanometer technology. Actually, the pitch of the micro, uh, the, the, the pitch of a chip is uh, halved every year and a half. And something like a fortnight before this historical agreement, the head of Intel announced that they are going, uh, that they are proceeding with manufacturing, uh, with industrial manufacturing of a 32 nanometer microchip. Uh, just to add things, I might say uh, that uh, another company, another Russian company called Angstrom, uh, two years ago purchased another 90 nanometer technology, which was apparently newer by this time, uh, and it cost uh, Angstrom $1 billion, and all the equipment was left in the snow, and it's not functioning. I can tell you now, just uh, a week ago, less than a week ago, I visited Albany, University of Albany, and went there to a company called Applied Materials, to the facilities of the company. Applied Materials is not manufacturing chip, it's manufacturing equipment to manufacture chips. So, you know, I saw all these state-of-the-art machines, and they say, that's plasma implantation to you. Whatever, you know, they, they use words, you, it's, it's, it's worse than cosmic, it, it, it worse than space technology. You understand that it has reached the level of complexity where it reminds you of, uh, you know, something biological. It's almost biological level of complexity. So all this equipment was just left in the snow. So actually, why are we purchasing with such a nervous show an obsolete 90 nanometer technology uh, for such a huge sum of money. One of the obvious answers is just laundering of money. It's just transferring money abroad, which is the, the, the most difficult process of laundering money. And you know, it just stays there. And what we purchase for this? Uh, well, something that can produce uh, uh, something that was considered several years ago microchips. And actually what I'm speaking about is a total degradation of Russian technical base and of Russian science as well. And one of the most horrific examples of this happened on August 17th during the catastrophe at Sayana Shushinskaya power station. The minute this disaster happened, my friends, I have a lot of uh, scientists, uh, technicians who are friends, engineers. They called me and they said, Julia, it's disbalancing of turbine. What, are, what is disbalancing of turbine? It basically means that, of course, uh, you have to balance the vibrations of turbine at high velocity, at high, uh, so just it doesn't come apart. Uh, and there were very few specialists in the Soviet Union who could do this. And the specialists are simply extinct. 
So when this particular turbine, it was called Gidraggregat Nr. 2, was brought back and installed after repairs and installed in the station, uh, it was not balanced really. Its vibrations were on the limit. And during the next four months, its vibrations increased fourfold. And on the eve of catastrophe, the seismographs registered a new vibration, a new type of waves of vibrations under the station. So what basically happened, it's, it's just technical mismanagement. It's just, uh, it's just people who cannot really manage this sort of technology. And that's another picture of what happened to the station. And that's another picture which I think a disastrous one. It's one of the major fires that have happened in 20th century, man-made fires. Uh, December the 5th, now, of course, if we not consider war disasters. It is the fire at uh, a nightclub, which was called Haramaya Loshit, the lame horse. It was in Perm. 156 people died. And if you look at all these dead bodies lying in the street, you can see that they are not really burnt. Actually, people did not burn to death. They suffocated to death within seconds, mostly because of a polystyrene that was used for insulation and it was, and it was wrongly installed. So right now, we've just seen the report published by the government commission about this. And the report did not answer two main questions. The first question is the following. Russia has around 20,000 fire inspectors. What do they do except take bribes? And the second question is really disastrous because when asked about the uh, poisonous properties of polystyrene that was installed uh, in the club, and it's a very big issue for Russian, for Russian, uh, development com uh, for Russian developers, for Russian con uh, building companies. So the commission said literally, I quote, we could not check on this because we had no mice. So they had no laboratory mice, but they have real living people to check on this, to check this on. So all these pictures I presented to you, they stand in sharp contrast to the official picture presented by Russian TV, that of Byzantine splendor, that of Russia coming from its knees. And you can see this Byzantine splendor in Medvedev's inauguration, which took place in Kremlin, and it was, you know, uh, so oriental, so great. And there was just one little detail that marred the performance and uh, made this Byzantine smack a little of Haiti. Uh, the detail is the following. This is President Obama car, and obviously it's an American-made car, because uh, nobody will understand if President Obama drives around in a Lexus. So, and this is a car in which President Medvedev drove to his imperial Byzantine inauguration. And obviously it's not a Chai car. And actually, this is the car of President Putin. They both like uh, German cars. And it's very funny that uh, at the same time, while driving around in uh, a Mercedes, President Putin said, after the crisis hit, that anybody who buys foreign-made cars is a traitor to Russia. 
And actually, that's uh, it's about the cult of Russia, because officially these guys say that the best Russian is the best. But look at this. I like this picture. This is Mr. Putin and this is Mr. Medvedev skiing. Somehow they don't wear Russian uniform. And that's another picture which I like also very much. Here's Mr. Putin with his uh, favorite watch. It's a $60,000 Patek Philippe. And here's Mr. Medvedev with his favorite watch. That's a $20,000 Frank Muller. Okay, you may see that, look, Prime Minister is wearing a $60,000 watch and the President is wearing a $20,000 watch. So the President is, uh, well, a small fry compared to Prime Minister. <laughs> Don't worry, our President has more. <laughs> Look at this. And you should notice they are different because this one is yellow gold and the other one is white gold. So now you may pity Mr. Putin. Well, Medvedev has lots of watches, and Mr. Putin has just one. Don't worry. Mr. Putin has a lot. He has them, you know, he has so much they can even present them to somebody. For instance, this is the famous picture in which he went to a vacation, uh, actually to Tuva, and uh, he saw a boy, and he liked the boy so much that he presented him with uh, a $10,000 blank pane watch, which he was wearing at this time. And uh, disaster happened within several two weeks, uh, within, uh, within next two weeks, because Mr. Putin uh, went visiting uh, just uh, some plant in some godforsaken town, and the worker at the plant asked him, please give me some present, Mr. Prime Minister. What present, says Mr. Putin? Oh, maybe a watch. And poor Prime Minister had to donate another $10,000 blank paint to a worker he was wearing at this time. And look at this guy on the right. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's not happy. He has a $200 watch. <laughs> Actually, while researching for this presentation, I discovered there's a similarity uh, between uh, President Clinton and President Bush. And they both had, and the similarity is that they both had 50, uh, $50 watches. <laughs> and look at another unhappy guy. This is Mr. Khodorkovsky. That's before he went to prison. And he's wearing a cheap plastic watch. And you ask why he was arrested. <laughs> Just compare this guy to the, 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 these, these other guys. Mr. Kadyrov, the president of Chechnya, with $300,000 watch. Mr. Kostin, the head of the, the state banker, with $240,000 watch. People that surround Putin, like Igor Levitin or Igor Sechin, also with very nice watches. And now, just to finish this presentation, I would like to introduce you to the pet project of Mr. Putin, and that's Sochi Olympic Games. And if you browse through the internet, you'll see a lot of beautiful plans for Olympic Games. For instance, this one, or this one, or this one, or this one, or this one. There are lots of pictures. But then you try to, to understand what's being built. And this is the picture of what's there right now. And this is another pet project of Mr. Putin. This is the bridge to Isle Ruski. I, you know, probably, you probably saw the uh, Isle Ruski is uh, uh, 
a little isle that is situated near Vladivostok. Uh, there are 3,000 inhabitants there, uh, and it's, uh, the bridge is built for the Asian Pacific Summit that is going to take place in two years there in the Far East. Uh, so actually, the capacity of the bridge uh, is uh, 50,000 cars per day, and as I said, there are only 3,000 people living in Isle Ruski. Uh, so you may wonder, maybe it's, maybe it's better to build a road from uh, Moscow to Vladivostok instead of this bridge. But don't worry, you see that this bridge is being built, and it's a very nice picture. And there's another very nice picture of the bridge. And if you compare, you see they're different. And that's another nice picture of this bridge. And that's another nice picture. And another. And that's what's being done right now. <laughs> So this is the last graph I want to show you. And this is the poll, the, the public opinion poll of, Mr. Le of Levada's center. And this is the poll uh, that, uh, about the popularity of uh, the president. And it dates from year 1996 to uh, year 2009. And you see that it's basically, if you look at it carefully, you'll understand it is composed of two different trends. One trend is called the price of oil. When the price of oil is down, the popularity of Russian president is down, no matter how he's called, Yeltsin, Putin, or Medvedev. When the price of oil is up, the popularity is up. And the other trend is, of course, that the popularity peaks during elections. And this is, of course, the net effect of TV propaganda. So why I'm showing this graph as uh, the last slide? Because this is really the explanation of what's happening to Russia, why all these residences, uh, all these watches, all these yachts? Because basically Kremlin understands that nothing depends on a small number of intellectuals that criticize the regime. Nothing depends on the Internet. Nothing depends, say, on cops who are killing people on the street. Nothing depends, nothing... No, no, there are no consequences for lavish spending, for stupid policies. Everything depends just on the price of oil. All the rest are just two small disturbances to disbalance the situation. Uh, so basically, the price of oil is the reason why Putin can behave as he behaves, and actually he can do whatever he can. That's actually what I wanted to say. Right. Thank you very much, Yulia, uh, uh, for your presentation. Uh, gentlemen, you can uh, go and take seats. And just before we'll proceed to Q&A, we'll do it right now, and we have time until uh, 5.30 for Q&A session. Let me just make, uh, to start uh, this discussion, um, I have a one a little comment and one question for you. Uh, one comment would be probably about the architecture of the one of the residents that you have shown, which is certainly it could be one of the interesting topics to discuss, 
Uh, the uh, Millehof, yeah. uh, the residence of Mr. Miller. It seems to me that this is reminiscent to not so much the Konstantinovsky Palace, but to Hermitage, uh, to Yekaterininsky Palace, imperial residence in Pushkin. Uh, seems to me that some kind of the St. Petersburg place of birth of Mr. Miller did play some role in his architectural, uh, some kind of desires and preferences. So, but it's, it's certainly, uh, it's probably a discussion for architects and some kind of enlightened discussion. As for the question, uh, actually, um, um, what you have described, at least as far as I understand, it's a very uh, clear and very some kind of sharp uh, description of uh, kleptocracy. Uh, certainly, uh, that's probably we could find in some other places in the world, but certainly multiplied by size and wealth and power of Russia. Uh, but whether it would be correct to describe the current social and political regime as not only, but first of all, uh, as uh, some kind of kleptocracy, uh, in essence, similar to, let's say, another Duvalier or another Mobuto or some, somebody like that, or it has some other element that could uh, may be could make them more different from those regimes. Okay, now so now we compare Putin to Duvalier. Duvalier is the guy, you know, who could just accidentally order to his uh, uh, to his underlings, uh, just kill me five hundred people, say in a month. Putin doesn't do this. We should, should do justice to Mr. Putin. You, you are you are, you are very very prejudiced, I would say. <laughs> Uh, but uh, of course, uh, uh, of course, basically, uh, you know, uh, of course, basically, I would compare it to lots of uh, dictatorships, say Latin American dictatorships. Actually, it's, it's the same pattern, and the worst of this pattern is, of course, that uh, mm, unfortunately, these sort of dictatorships they grow out of uh, weak management of the previous, uh, say, weak management of reforms, and. Actually, the deficiencies of democracies when uh, they are taking place in uh, poor countries. I'm not criticizing democracy, mind you. Certainly, I think that's the best thing you have. But we tend to judge democracy by its successes and not by its failures. We try to quote United States as a good example, and we tend to forget about Venezuela or Bolivia as bad examples. And uh, my point is that the worst thing about it is that uh, democracies don't fare well in poor states, uh, not because of some national uh, character of these people who live in poor states, but just because poor people, they vote for somebody who says, I will divide the riches between you, and not for somebody who says, I'll uh, permit you to enrich yourself. And uh, one of the things uh, that that are the worst, that is, one of the worst things that's happening in Russia is that basically we have to be just and to understand that uh, in year 1999, the choice was between Mr. Putin, who turned out whom he turned to be, and say between Mr. Lushkov with his wife Baturina, uh, who was saying, I'll protect poor people from oligarchs. And actually, I don't think that Putin was the worst choice. The big problem is that there was re- no really... No really good choice for Russia at this time. Right. Okay. Uh, now we're moving to Q&A. And please uh, stand up, identify yourself, and pose a question. Gentlemen here first. 
name is Stephen Shore. In a country where an average worker can get a $10,000 watch from the president, is this not the very model of a worker's paradise? And <laughs> yeah. Official residences, is he not the kind of vanguard of a new Russian proletariat? <laughs> You know, it's, it's only one worker that got the watch. And actually, there are many people like, uh, you know, Mr. Timchenko or, uh, say, Mr. Levitin or Mr. Uh, Mr. Chemizov, friends of Mr. Putin, that got another expensive present. Much more expensive than the watch. Actually, they got whole companies and whole branches of industry to manage. And I can't say they're faring well. Right. Please. Uh, and the Schorslund uh, Peterson Institute uh, uh, very much in the, enjoyed your very, uh, very illustrative and uh, well illuminated uh, lecture. I uh, just wanted to remind you that uh, Stalin had 25 official residences, uh, according to Simon Montefiore, so this is uh, rather humble. But uh, on so another. Putin is trying to measure up. Yeah. <laughs> No, 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 but you should remember that there were Stalin's official residences in Georgia, in Abkhazia. Five in, in Abkhazia, five in Georgia. Yes, so... <laughs> but the uh, question, could you give us some assessment or sense of what uh, uh, level of kickbacks that are common in particular corrupt areas like uh, pipeline construction or uh, uh, arms sales? What uh, share of uh, uh, the sales sum normally goes to kickback? Thank you. No, that's a very interesting question. That's, uh, you know, something I would give an arm and like to know. Uh, but uh, just, I'll give you one few, I already quoted it, that China has built its pipeline for $2 billion dollars. And uh, as far as I remember, even the official price tag, two years ago, lecturing at Columbia University, Gerhard Schroeder, who is obviously a guy who is interested in diminishing the price of Nord Stream, uh, quoted the price tag as uh, 10 billion euros. So obviously the price since then has just grew up. Uh, So this is... Just the scale of kickbacks. You can you can deduce the scale of kickbacks from this, and there are some very good indicators, and they are really frightening. Uh, and uh, what I would call an indicator, for instance, uh, there's the usual law that uh, the price of uh, an apartment uh, in an ordinary con- in a country, as average, is one uh, or two monthly salaries, monthly uh, monthly average salaries. In uh, Moscow, it's uh, it's bigger by a, by a zero. Yes, how do you call it? It's a, it can be six, seven times bigger than two average salaries. So obviously, that's a slight indication of corruption because this means that there's mad money going into the market and uh, bringing other prices. Uh, another. Uh, Another indicator is, for instance, the price of drugs, I mean medicines uh, in the drug stores. Uh, on average, it's twice as high as in the West or in the United States. So obviously there's not a lot of work uh, that's being done while the, drug is cro- while the drug crosses the border. So additional 50%, addition, ad- ad- additional uh, 50% probably goes to somebody's pockets or divided. 
Or another indicator is the price uh, uh, in the rest, uh, price of food in the restaurants. So it's also several times higher than, say, uh, in Washington or in New York. Uh, so uh, actually, the 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 numbers that uh, can be deducted from this sort of uh, collateral uh, collateral evidence. They are they are staggering. They they uh, my impression that this can't be, but uh, uh, because they seem to point out that the number of uh, any, any, that something that is not earned can constitute up to fifty percent of GDP. Uh, this probably this cannot be, but maybe about thirty percent. That that's uh, the, the amount is simply unbelievable. And just I, I would recall, they probably you remember the Hermitage uh, study of the construction cost of this uh, blue stream, uh, which uh, consisted of three pieces. One piece on the Russian territory, just absolutely plain terrain. After that, uh, about 40, 400 kilometers, about 300 kilometers on the bottom of the Black Sea, and about 700 kilometers on the mountainous terrain in Turkey. And these uh, 400 or 450 kilometers on the plain Russian territory happen to be three times more expensive than the 700 kilometers on the mountainous terrain in Turkey. But it was definitely, it was year 2003, it was uh, just very beginning, and there was a childhood of this uh, system. Just one more example. Uh, Of course, there's a very independent, uh, very interesting thing, which is called, what is the cost of production of Gazprom? Nobody knows. The last time anybody ever mentioned it, uh, it was a guy called uh, Farhat Akhmetov. He was the owner of an independent gas producer, which was called Nordgas, which is uh, swallowed right now by, by Gazprom. And uh, while Gazprom was swallowing uh, Nordgas, Mr. Akhmetov wrote an article in which he claimed that his uh, gas uh, extraction is, uh, this his uh, price is uh, $2 per 1,000 cubic meters. And Gazprom price is, uh, Gazprom self-cost is uh, $20 per 1,000 cubic meters. But this was a long time ago. And you should also take into account that uh, Mr. Akhmetov was extracting his gas uh, from the depth that was four times bigger than Gazprom's. Right. Okay, gentlemen here on the fourth row. Yes. Uh, Farid Turbatolin, I am from Turkmenistan. Uh, yesterday, uh, Minister, Foreign Office Minister of Russia, Lavrov, was in Turkmenistan. Uh, what's the reason? It's Turkmen gas. If yes, uh, Lavrov is Minister of uh, Russia or of Gazprom. Uh, the second question, why Russian government never defend uh, Russian citizen in Turkmenistan? Thank so why Russians? The second question... Why Russian government never defend uh, Turkmen citizen in Turkmenistan? Russian citizens. Russian citizens. Uh, no, uh, there are no Russian citizens in Turkmenistan anymore because, uh, as uh, you probably know, and everybody maybe knows, uh, Mr. Putin side with uh, uh, Mr. Niyazov, uh, the, the treaty uh, that uh, cancelled a double citizenship uh, this was uh, because Mr. Niyazov insisted on it. Uh, so something like uh, 140,000 of Russian citizens 
uh, residing in Turkmenistan had to choose Russian or Turkmenian uh, citizenship. Uh, there was a lot of harassment after this. And uh, the worst thing that this uh, treaty was signed in year 2003, and it was uh, two treaties were signed. This one uh, that actually basically sold Russian citizens uh, into slavery in Turkmenistan. And the other treaty was signed at the same time uh, between Turkmenistan and Gazprom uh, for, uh, the, uh, for, 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 Turkme for Turkmenistan gas. But what was, uh, what was absolutely unexplainable is that the real beneficiary of the natural gas treaty was not Gazprom, but uh, a small company uh, called, uh, just a second, it's, it's because it was not Rusakrenerga, it was predecessor. It was, uh, uh, no, it was, uh, just, 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 just a second, uh, the, the, the name slipped out of my mind. Trans. Yes, yes, it was trans Euro, Euro Trans Gas. It was, yes, it was Euro Trans Gas. Uh, it was a small company registered in some Hungarian village, uh, in some uh, Hungarian village uh, for, in, uh, in, for 12, uh, with a charter capital of $12,000 uh, by uh, four guys, physical, uh, by four persons, uh, uh, three of whom were residents, uh, were citizens of Romania. And the other guy, uh, the fourth guy, was uh, an Israeli citizen and a lawyer for Simon Magilevich, a very well-known international gangster. So this particular company benefited from Mr. Putin selling 140,000 Russian citizens in, sla in slavery to Turkmen Bashi, which is very funny. Uh, and... Uh, the, the second question about Lavrov, I'm sorry because I'm, I was far from the Internet. I'm not following up the events. And uh, uh, probably everybody knows the history that preceded, uh, that, uh, the history of Russian-Turkmenian uh, relationship. It's basically the history of uh, Russia trying to squeeze uh, everybody out of natural gas market. Uh, and as I said uh, I've already said, uh, uh, to my mind, Russia is making, or rather Kremlin is making a strategic mistake. Uh, and uh, this strategic mistake is actually characterizes the nature of the regime. Uh, because, as I said, Putin wants to build pipelines. And he is sure that these pipelines will dictate his will to the West, which is simply not so right now. With shale gas, with LNG, uh, with all other producers, maybe with Nabucco, it's simply not true. But the very funny thing is that while trying to do this, uh, Putin does many things that damage Russian interests, actually, even damage Russian interests as a gas producer. Because the recent scandal with Ukraine, it was, uh, you know, Putin wanted uh, to show to everybody that Ukraine is uh, not, cannot be trusted as, uh, a middleman, as a middle country for gas transportation. But really what did Putin show is that Russia cannot be trusted also. And uh, Gazprom sales actually dropped partly because of this scandal. And another part of the strategy was uh, signing up agreements with Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan for exorbitant prices. Uh, Mr. Putin bought their gas for... Uh, I think for something like uh, 350 uh, 
per 1,000 cubic meters. And uh, this was at a time when the price was already falling down, and it was something like to say, at this time, Qatar gas uh, cost uh, something like $80 per 1,000 cubic meters. And, of course, both countries were very happy with this arrangement. Uh, but then the catch came, uh, because uh, when Russia, in the time of uh, obvious drop of prices, had to buy gas from Turkmenistan, it simply stopped doing this. And there was an majestic role between two countries because obviously two regimes are, well, shall we say they're not very, neither regime is very good. So they're both thinking about, about the same thing and, uh, you know, their thinking is done in the, same, uh, uh, in the same part of the body. Uh, the gentleman in the first row. From Safe Foundation, um, you, uh, I have two-part uh, question. One is a comment that the highway that you showed near Moscow that was very interesting. I guess uh, that to- tells me why both Napoleon and Adolf Hitler got stuck in no, no, Russia. No, no, you no, know, both highways. <laughs> no, they no. were defeated. No, no, <laughs> As no, a result, this... maybe that's for the Americans too to wonder if they ever. <laughs> because during the Second World War, one of the American commanders did say that we keep going beyond. Germany into right into Russia, so that highway might warn them <laughs> that you could get uh, you know, buried there. During a special the second, message for the American audience, as you during understand. the Second World War, some uh, Soviet commander said that we should keep passion on. So, I see. <laughs> all right, so it's kind of mutual. Um, the second question is: um, you, you you must have been noticed. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you you have been talking. Uh, about these issues even in Russia. And have you been noticed by Mr. Putin and Mr. Medvedev, and what do they think about it? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, really, I, I, I think that uh, the authorities, uh, you know, has, uh, has despaired of me. <laughs> okay, it's my choice maybe to just to say that um, uh, when um, uh, Yulia has been rather vocal in explaining what has happened during the Russian-Georgian war um, and what has been committed by the Russian regime against the neighbor uh, democratic countries, um, uh, it became known uh, a few days later when the that time prime minister of Russia was extremely unhappy about the presence of uh, Yulia Latinina as the host. No, no, of no, no, the, no, that's, that's uh, exaggerated. Okay, okay, no, but it has been reported. Okay, you can just shed light on the real story behind your relations with the prime minister. No, uh, no, 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 no. Okay, uh, just okay, tell us. Uh, no, no, really, as I said, it, it's, it's, it's totally exaggerated. Of course, uh, uh, Echo of Moscow had, uh, well, uh, it was. Uh, uh, probably the only widely heard independent source of information about Russian-Georgian war. And of course, well, we had some difficulties, but as you see, we survived. And partly we survived because I think there was, uh, you know, this good cop and bad cop story. Somebody complained to Putin and Putin said, let them leave. So... All right, thank you for the thanks of the Prime unjust. Minister. Uh, this yes. Yeah. R.L. Coin, please. A good word for Prime Minister, so. Hi, Julia. Um, You're one of the more astute observers and commentators of uh, current Russian affairs, and uh, your articles always are as provocative uh, as they're brilliant. 
So the question now uh, is about the jockeying for the position of uh, presidential candidacy in 2012. There are signals from both Mr. Putin and Mr. Medvedev that they, may, they are maybe interested uh, in the job after 2012. Um, so far, we had Mr. Jurgens here in town saying that Mr. Putin and Mr. Medvedev may meet uh, and decide it in the primary of two who is going to be the candidate. So two people will decide with one person probably making the decision. Um, I would leave, leave you to speculate who that person may be. But uh, seriously, what is your prediction? Uh, who is going to be the candidate and what is going to change, if anything, after the procedure of the elections is finished uh, in 2012? Thank you. Okay, first of all, I don't think uh, you should... Uh mistake any signals, anything coming from Mr. Medvedev for a signal. It's just white noise. <laughs> okay, so I think that was uh, not two people but one man. That's Mr. Putin, who will decide who will be the next president of Russia. Uh, probably he'll take up the job himself, which is uh, the most likely, uh, I think, uh, ish, uh, which is, uh, I think, uh, is the most likely uh, thing to happen. Mm. The only objection to this is that uh, Mr. Putin really seems to be, you know, he, he, likes, uh, he likes leisure, he likes uh, skiing, he likes yachts, uh, uh, he spends a lot of time uh, not working. Uh, so his present position, a position in which he's uh, really working only on issues which are important to, 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 to hold the power, say, issues of uh, dividing money between um, people who matter, and, uh, and in which he stays in shadow and lets uh, President Medvedev act as his press secretary and, and emit some white noise about uh, modernization, innovation, uh, things like this, uh, democracy, whatever. Uh, it, it's very advantageous, really, to Mr. Putin because uh, Medvedev looks like clown and Putin looks like uh, like uh, like a real man. Uh, so maybe there will be some other guy who is appointed as a president, which I doubt because really, uh, you know, I cannot say there's uh, some something falling out between Medvedev and Putin, uh, but obviously they are uh, distrustful of each other. Obviously, you know. Uh, when you appoint somebody as your puppet, uh, the puppet is always unhappy that it is treated as a puppet and not as a man. And the, the, the man who pulls the strings is also unhappy that uh, puppet seems to imagine itself to be a real thing. Uh, so, so this is sort of, you know, friction that's going between the two. It's, it's not serious. It's, it's, it's more on, you know, on level of personal feelings, I think, uh, of some uh, small things that Medvedev tries to do because he's not allowed to do big things uh, and uh, he cannot grab uh, the, the permission himself. He's too timid. Uh, so, as I said, my best bet is that it will be Putin if nothing uh, serious happens. 
And I don't think that nothing. Ser- uh, I don't think that anything serious will happen because I think Russian regime is really quite stable, and there are some regimes that end only with the death of the the guy who is ruling. It's like Franca. You know, Franca's regime ended uh, the minute Franca was dead. Not one minute before. Not one minute after. Right. Okay. Lady in the first row. I uh, work at the Peterson Institute, and you've already alluded to uh, to my question with your previous response. Um, but I was wondering if you could comment on Medvedev's recent talk of police reform in the Ministry of uh, of Interior. Thank you. Sorry, which talk? Uh, the the police reform, Ministry of Interior reform. Oh, you know, when he fires Nurgaliev, I will be talking about police reform. <laughs> All right, uh, lady in the corner. Uh, my name is Nana Khizanishvili. I am a representative of a Georgian diaspora here in D.C. Uh, first of all, I want to express my deepest appreciation for um, all your courageous and very honest coverage on Georgia. Um, and uh, it indeed takes honest journalism and uh, high professionalism to do that in today's Russia. Uh, now, my question is that despite the atrocious situation uh, within Russia, the regime is uh, apparently on the quest to reclaim the lost spheres of influence. And in the meantime, uh, the West is spellbound and in acquiescence and submission, I don't know. So what do you think has to happen uh, for the West to wake up and to see what they are up to? Thank you. No, I don't think there's West in general. I would distinguish here United States and Europe. I would make that it, it makes a big difference. And actually, I think the answer is this to this uh, was uh, uh, given by Mr. Khodorkovsky, who said that Russia has turned into an exporter of corruption. I think that's a very important point to make. Uh, that probably actually it's the only danger that Russia right now poses to the West. Because obviously Russia is not a danger from military or any point of view. You cannot be a danger if you you wouldn't shoot at somebody at something at somewhere where you keep your bank accounts. So it's, Russia is not Soviet Union, and it's the biggest difference because Soviet Union was uh, sending tanks abroad, and Putin's money send, uh, Putin's uh, Russia is sending money abroad. So there are two different regimes completely. So you don't have to fear this part. And actually, it's, it's only Georgia that had to suffer. And not, actually, it was not even destroyed. You know, sort of uh, Putin stopped when he thought of uh, uh, possible consequences. Uh, but the, this notion of exporting corruption, it's really very serious. And it mainly concerns uh, Europeans. Uh, because uh, I don't know whether you have read Taliavini report, commission, uh, the, the report of the Commission of Haiti Taliavini and Russian-Georgian war, but it was absolutely ludicrous. It said, you know, Georgians claim that it's Russians who started the war, and Russians claim that, Georgia, that it, these are Georgians who started the war, and we don't know. Okay, uh, you know, that's, it's like somebody, a judge in a court saying, so Peter claims that uh, he's, uh, it is... Uh, Peter, Peter claims that it's Misha who is the killer, and Misha claims that it's Peter who is the killer. And we don't know. Uh, so what the court is about then? Uh, so uh, basically, 
Uh, I think what's happening to Europe, it's, it's one of the signs of, uh, bureaucracy, tr- of bureaucracy's triumph in Europe. It's, 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 not only, it's not only Putin, you know. I'm sorry to say this, but it's also the global warming thing. The uh, uh, lots of bureaucratic solutions which are destroying freedom, not from without, but from within. And actually my theory is that, uh, uh, you know, Before the Soviet Union, when Soviet Union existed, there was real democracy in Europe, and of course in the United States, but there still is. Uh, But after Soviet Union came crashing down, uh, lots of countries and lots of bureaucracies that, of course, couldn't afford themselves to proliferate because they were afraid of Soviet Union, started, you know, proliferating and multiplying like cancer, like, like cancer. And I think that's uh, sort of bureaucratic cancer is the war in Europe. And uh, commissions like Taliavini Commission and uh, European attitude to Russia is just one example of this, of some major problem. Right. Uh, gentleman over there. Yes. Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm Mark Rubin. I saw the picture that you had of the power plant and that was destroyed there, and that gave me some, led me to question the could, safety. Could of the you theory. identify yourself? My name's Mark Rubin, I'm, and that uh, raised a question in my mind about the safety of the nuclear power plants in Russia today. Oh. Is that a real issue? No, issue I ca- cannot, ca- ca- cannot comment on this for the lack of technical expertise, sorry. <laughs> I don't think there are many nuclear, uh, new nuclear power plants in Russia. There are 26 under construction in China, by the way. <laughs> right, yes, please. Alex Grigori, Voice of America, Russian Service. Uh, what do you think, why uh, Putin and Medvedev team still playing uh, anti-Western, anti-American card? Sorry? Why are they still playing anti-Western and uh, anti-American card inside the Russia? Uh well, I think it's not only Putin, for instance. It's all, all, also Muslim countries and things like this. I think it's actually a very good question. I think that's uh, one of the biggest difference uh, between totalitarian regimes of uh, uh, the last century and contemporary regimes. Uh, sorry, because I'm answering this question in a quite a complicated way, but I think that that will be worth it. Uh, you know, I'll try, I'll remind you of uh, George Orwell's book, the famous book, his uh, 1984, in which the world is described as divided between three major superpowers and all three are totalitarian. And indeed, this seemed to be a possibility back in the middle of the century. But after Soviet Union came down and after China started to turn to market for uh, to turn into a market uh, and after after India started developing uh, we suddenly realized that we live in an open society which is almost total and actually it's, it's, it's uh, the, the, the totalitarian government is not already an issue the the open world has triumphed and obviously um, if Soviet Union or Nazi Germany could not defeat the open world then obviously such small fries as Venezuela or Iran, they cannot do this. Uh, but uh, the big difference, uh, so actually what happened is that uh, the sort of states that were described by Orwell, 
they survived, but they survived not as giants, but in a very small pieces of uh, in small cr- nooks and cranks of uh, you know a big open society. They survive in places like Venezuela, Iran, or North Korea. Uh, Russia is not exactly like this because it's, it's certainly not a rock state. It's uh, maybe a hooligan state, but you cannot define it as a rock state because uh, rock states, they don't uh, keep their money abroad. Uh, so uh, what I want to say is that this sort of regime uh, we have in Russia or the sort of regime they have in, in Venezuela or in Iran It's different from totalitarian regime, real totalitarian regime of the 20th century by two very important things. Uh, the first is that uh, Stalin or Hitler, they wanted really to dominate the world. And they kept all the science inside and they really tried to build the industry. So they tried to conquer the world. Uh, these guys really don't want to conquer the world because uh, if they conquer the world, where will they get their Mercedes and their watches and who will build their villas? Uh, so that's the first difference. Mm. And the second very important difference is that totalitarian states, they had totalitarian ideology. We said, we are the first, we are the best, we are the greatest. And they fell apart precisely because the people realized it's not true. They are not the first and they are not the greatest. And this sort of, uh, uh, and these other regimes, they're not saying we're the first, we're the greatest. They're saying, These guys are the first. These guys are the greatest. That's why we hate them. It's very important because this corresponds to reality. When Mr. Chavez or when Mr. Ahmadinejad say to the West that you are rich, you are rotten, you are corrupt, and we are poor, and therefore we hate you, you know, it's, it's true. You cannot argue this. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's, it stands to, to it's, it can be checked. Uh, so, uh, This sort of, first of all, it's not ideology, it's PR. And it, it's, it's very different because ideology is a set of rules uh, and you have to, to, to behave uh, yourself according to the set of rules. And PR is just you behave, uh, you do whatever you do, whatever you do, and then you explain away what you do and why you do this. Uh, so basically, uh, I think that's, that's a very bad story that Putin does. Because it's very much like a Muslim world. Actually, it's, uh, it's, it's like he's like Wahhabis, only without, only without real belief in God and without, of course, you know, blowing up buildings and things like this. Uh, because uh, because what, he does, what he does say, we are poor, America is rich, and we hate America for being rich. Okay, gentlemen, the fourth one. Kevin Rothrock, American Enterprise Institute. I'm wondering if you've seen the petition that's circulating on the Internet that's, that's gathered, I think, about 11,000 signatures calling for the resignation of, of the Prime Minister, Putin. And uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, and additionally, what you think the future of the Kaliningrad uh, meetings will be, the, the demonstrations, which there's going to be another big one, I think, on Saturday. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. On that. Yeah, I've seen the petition. I didn't sign it for obvious reasons. I'm a journalist. I cannot sign a petition because... You know, uh, uh, as I said, I, said I, I would cease to become a journalist after this. Uh, the second point about Kaliningrad, you know, I'm, I've already said that I'm very skeptic about all sorts of uh, people's uprisings in Russia for two different reasons. 
One is that, uh, as I said, everything depends on the price of oil. And uh, Putin and his regime can get away almost with anything. And the second point is that I'm very distrustful of the quality of people's uprisings. Because uh, Kaliningrad is really an exception. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's mainly due because of the stupidity of uh, the governor there, Mr. Boss. He's a very arrogant man. And you know there are remarks on the Internet uh, sites, Kaliningrad Internet sites that say, okay, these guys has introduced, uh, has, uh, introduced us to the new tax on cars, on anything, any moving vehicles. Uh, let him register his uh, plane in Kaliningrad. And that will cover 100% of the new tax. Uh, so uh, both is really something that uh, somebody who is probably not liked by the local population, or the same story in Irkutsk, where Deripaska is hated by the local population. But uh, on the average, the quality of uh, Russian uh, protest is not very high. And when we have, for instance, pensioners and communists gathering around and protesting against uh, the abolishment of uh, so-called uh, social privileges, how would you say? Social payments. Social payments and protest against the, the abolishment of social payments, which are really a remnant of the Soviet system and a disaster and probably the only good really from econo uh, the, the only good thing that Putin has really done from economic point of view is abolishing these very social payments because uh, sound economy cannot function when a private co company has to pay for some for, for somebody who is uh, who is indi who is indigent uh, so the the quality of protest is really low we have time only for two uh, last questions uh, the gentleman in the very very back just over there just next to the world yeah Georgi Havsuriani, uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. Uh, Madam Latigna, how uh, do you comment uh, that regardless the evidence you just presented, regardless the uh, human rights abuse, day-to-day day -day human rights abuse in Russia, the Russian uh, leaders are greeted in the West as the emperors. Uh, just take an example of recent visit of Medvedev in Paris. Plus, uh, let alone this, plus they, it was signed this arm deal of selling the warships to Russia. How do you explain this? Uh, don't you think, is it a naivety or it's kind of uh, irresponsibility from, uh, you know, Western leaders? Thank you. You know, first of all, I, I, I don't see Russian leaders treated as emperors. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's common courtesy. The second point is that uh, I think uh, Russian government is free to sell Mistral to whomever it wants. Of course, I understand this presents a very big problem for Georgia, but uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's a sale and that's the end of it. And uh, the third point I want to say that uh, to me Mistral sale is first of all very important as an indication that uh, Mr. Anatoly Serdyakov, the, the, uh, the, the Minister of Defense, is really transforming the army, uh, maybe because uh, they think that Russian army underperformed in Georgian war, uh, because this, this followed Georgian war, obviously. 
Uh, but uh, Mr. Sertikov is a very capable manager, a man to watch for. Uh, I'm not praising him, actually. He's the, the guy who uh, won the uh, only really victorious war Russia ever led, Putin's Russia ever led, and that's the war against Yukos. Uh, <laughs> because Mr. Sertikov was commanding, you know, the main task force. He was commanding the tax ministry at this time. <laughs> Right. Okay, but still, Mr. Serzhikov is uh, an iron guy uh, who really transforms or tries to transform Russian army. And he did a lot of, maybe he did less than is needed, but he did much more than I think is possible. And he's, uh, you know, it's a siren will to say to Russian military complex that I won't purchase your obsolete equipment. I need something that can really make war like Mistral, and I will purchase it. I will spend money in France and not of Russia, in, uh, not in Russia. I think that's a very courageous decision. Right. Now, it's, I apologize that we cannot take all questions just right now. We have one last question for the gentleman from the second row, and all of we can have in private discussion after uh, the official will end. Thank you. George Krasnow. I represent uh, um, Russia America Goodwill Associates. It's Association of Americans for Friendship with Russia. And my question concerns Marina Salier. Yeah. We all remember she was a very prominent, very outspoken, very brave journalist for, since the time of Perestroika. But then she fell silent exactly 10 years ago at the time of the ascension of Mr. Putin to power. Now she has spoken again. And from what I know, she has been very critical not only about Mr. Putin, but also about uh, Anatoly Sobchak, who is usually considered to be a lioness lion here, the father of democracy, etc. So the question is, what do you think? How do you assess? Uh, what's your attitude toward uh, her new uh, interviews concerning the two figures, both Putin and Sobchak? And it seems like a natural question is uh, also how come the two presumably Democrats like Boris Yeltsin and Sobchak gave birth to such a, a person as you describe authoritarian? I think it's a very good question. Unfortunately, it's a very complex one. And I really don't think whether many people are familiar with the name of Marina Salia. So basically, uh, basically, uh, I think um, uh, this, is, this is the question about the origins of the regime. And this is the question of a, about a situation that happened back in 1992 uh, when uh, Mr. Sobchak, who was at this time the mayor of St. Petersburg, you know, he was uh, a liberal, a democrat from Russian point of view, but also, he was also a very pompous man, uh, I think, and Marina Saria thinks as well. Uh, he was uh, really, uh, you know, a typical example of uh, what was called Russian reform at this time. Uh, so this is the man who thinks that uh, everybody will love him, everybody will vote for him. Uh, actually, he does not, uh, you know, these, these guys, I mean, Russian reformers like Gaidar, like Sobchak, they never thought that democracy is about election campaign. They, they never really conducted campaigns. So Mr. Sobchak really has lost because he did not, uh, he, he, he thought that everybody will vote for him. And Mr. Putin, who was the head of his uh, headquarters, of his election headquarters, 
had made actually the the uh, one conclusion drew one conclusion from this that he just uh, have to go without elections because people are stupid uh, no 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 what uh, but uh, coming back to Sobchak, what happened is that in year 92 Uh, when uh, St. Petersburg was not exactly starving, but uh, the, the, the food was, there was uh, something that could have developed into the shortage of food, uh, Sobchak signed a decree uh, that said you should uh, export some uh, very valuable uh, materials, metals, uh, things like this, uh, uh, to abroad, and bring instead uh, some food for the money paid by the exporters. Uh, and uh, the exports were heavily underpriced, and uh, the food never came back, and everything was evidently organized by Mr. Putin. And uh, Marina Salia published uh, a report about this at this time, and there was a big investigation because uh, Petra Soviet, the, the local deputies, were, in a, were, were having a gorgeous row with Mr. Sobchak. Uh, and... Uh, I think it, it's, it's, it's really very important to see the origins of the regime because uh, what really happened, I think, the worst thing that happened during Yeltsin's time, because, of course, you have not to blame Sobchak or Gaidar or Chubais for this. You have to blame Yeltsin. Uh, not in the same communists are blaming him, uh, but, you know, it's the president who is responsible for what's happening in the country, And uh, we remember, you don't, we, we, we know that it is Pinochet who made the Chile reforms and not uh, the people who served under him as counselors. Uh, so what happened under Yeltsin, basically, I think, that he created a system which was uh, very liberal from democratic point of view. You could vote for anybody. All parties were around, really. Uh, but it was not free from economic point of view because you could really make money out of power, and that's what the oligarchs were doing, or people who signed these con contracts, like the one that was undersigned by Mr. Putin, were doing. And the problem that such a system is unstable. Uh, economic uh, absence of economic freedom combined with presence of political freedom is unstable. So it led to the situation we now have that... Uh, people who were, doing, who were making money out of, uh, out of power just uh, made their power eternal. So, so that's, uh, any other group could, could have done it. But it happened that it was done by Mr. Putin. Uh, so, so probably that's the fault of the Russian reformers, not in the sense that they, uh, you know, uh, they personally enriched themselves from it. Sobchak was not taking bribes, really, but that they made it possible. It's like, you know, as a question of a, somebody, of a military commander losing a battle. The reformers lost the battle. What is important that they lost the battle? All the other questions why they lost the battle are really unimportant compared to this one. So it's like, you either lose, you, you either lose, you win. They lost. All right. There are many other very important issues and topics to be discussed. Unfortunately, we need to uh, wrap up at this moment, at least official part of our meeting to, uh, this afternoon. Uh, we now can proceed upstairs for refreshment. But before that, uh, let me uh, please join me in thanking uh, Yulia Latinina for this illuminating, insightful, and interesting debate. Thank you.